Awesome. Let's get into God's word this morning. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 17 is uh, our, our theme verse. Uh, you, you may be in a few months going, Mike, are we going to end Romans? No, we're going to teach through Romans uh, this year, and I'll explain why in a moment. But Romans 1, 17 says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as, it, is, as it is written, the just or the righteous will live by what? By faith. So when, when we come to this book in the Bible, this marvelous treatise that the Apostle Paul wrote, we, we ask ourselves, why, why is it that it is seemingly so important within the context of the New Covenant, the New Testament that God has given us? And so I, I started trying to answer that this week, and this is going to be kind of an introduction to chapter 1, and I have to confess, I probably studied more for this sermon than I've studied for any sermon other than the first sermon I preached about 28 years ago, and that's not a good thing. Because you get too many thoughts in your head, guess what? They ought to all come out, right? So check your watch. We'll be all right. We'll get out of here today. But we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 as an intro to, to Romans. But, but why study Romans? You know, I can give you the real, the real easy answer, and it's a, it's a God told me trump card. As I was praying over this year, actually about halfway through 2018, God moved on to teach hope the book of Romans. Well, you have to understand, that's out of my wheelhouse. That is not my normal flow, so I'm, I'm wrestling God over that. And as I started moving into it more, I understood why now it was important, because we're really at a season at Hope that, that I'm thankful for. It's a season that as we've been building this ministry over 10 years, and uh, we always talk about the, the foundation, the concrete still being wet, we've come to a place where God has raised up you. He, he's raised up people that, that love Jesus Christ, that use your gifts and talents, that, that want to lead, that want to take ownership. And it's changed my, my position as your pastor to, to really where it needs to be, that I can spend more time on prayer and, and teaching God's word than on building buildings and setting up departments and setting up bylaws and all that fun stuff. So, so really, you have a big part of that. But even more so, and this is where it gets important, that is within the recorded history of the church, if you go back and you study Christianity from its early days, from the beginnings, the, the early church, every time it seems there's been a movement of reformation or a movement of revival within the church, a big change that changes even the outreach of the church, you can always find in there the teachings of the book of Romans being, being critical to why that took place. It was this verse we just read, verse 17, that, that hit the heart of Martin Luther, that, that was a monk that was actually ticked off at God over Romans, because he thought the righteousness of God meant that God blessed those who could make themselves right. Now we know that's a, that's a dying quest right there. But it came alive to him that, no, it is the righteousness of God that makes us right with God. And through that, he began to move what we call the Reformation that gives you and I the privilege today of what we get to do in worshiping God. It was at Aldersgate that, that John Wesley was, was touched by a simple reading of the book of Romans, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ and rocked the world through his ministry. John Calvin, Augustine, I can go on and on through the early fathers of the church. They were all shaped by this, by this wonderful book. And you have to ask yourself, why is that then? Because there's a lot of books in the Bible. I mean, Timothy's awesome, and Philippians is awesome, and Revelation is fun if you can understand all of it. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the, the Gospels. But why is Romans so important? Let me explain just real quickly. In Romans, we see the clearest testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ than in the end of the book. We see the power of God made evident for us and shows us again that God is able to change even the worst of us and to make us right with him through Jesus Christ. Romans is all about it. So here's the Apostle Paul writing this, this treatise to the specific church 
somewhere around AD 57. You always forget, guys, Christianity went a long time without the Bible. You know that? He, he was writing this about AD 57 to these group of people that were in Rome forming this church. But we see now that really the Holy Spirit was writing it through Paul for every generation, for you and I, so that today we can always be reminded that the gospel is the answer for our lives. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of how God makes sinners right through the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's a precious gift that God gave us because when you grasp the gospel, when you understand, when you see yourself in it, guys, that's where transformation takes place. That's where real change begins to move in us, not because of our own efforts, but because of us taking hold of that which God has already done for us. So this letter to Romans in the Roman church, it, it gives us the most complete diagnosis of the plague of sin, but it also gives us the most glorious, straightforward answer of the answer to sin, which is simply this, the justification by faith apart from the works of the law. So why Romans? Why now? I believe, church, that the church of Jesus Christ in our country in our city, in our culture, in our context, needs a reformation. I, I believe the church of Jesus Christ needs to get back to the main thing being the main thing. That we're not here, we're not here to make nice people go to hell. We're not here to, to let the government change us and show us morality. Because we are here about one message and one message only. That is, we are justified by faith. We are saved by faith, by grace. And we accept Jesus Christ by faith. And that's the only thing that will transform our culture, our lives, anything else. So today, let's begin. As we look at this church in Rome, it's really interesting. The, um, this, this church in Rome was just forming. And if you can picture, if, you, if, you, if you're a history person, you, you think back through the courses you were made to take and all through school, it was at a very unique point in history because this little church forming around the thought that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died on a cross and rose from the grave, was smack dab in the most important city of the known world. And it was also smack dab between two very opposing forces that had more similarities than they would ever admit. Here's this little church being formed in the midst of the empire, the Roman Empire, the greatest thing known at that time, and, and also the temple, the, the, the continuation of Judaism, even though Jesus Christ, when he said on the cross, it is finished, he said, I've accomplished the, the law of Moses. I've taken care of it. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. So here they're caught in this place where on one side, they're, they're, they're led by the empire to, to paganism, to that, that belief that man is God that everything good in this world is because of man, that we are able to make it good, and, and, and we ought to just worship ourselves, which brings you a lot of superstitious kind of things found in the empire. And then also the temple, which even though they wouldn't admit it, is still a worship of man, because in the temple it was all about your sacrifice, about you obeying the rules, about you doing everything perfect, and somehow by that perfection in you, a perfect God then would love you. I'm so glad we don't live in those days anymore. So they're caught. They're caught in this place. And here's the Apostle Paul, this very educated Jewish man who was a, a leader in Judaism, who had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he knew something that they needed to know, and that was the resurrected Jesus Christ was the exact opposite, but also the answer to both paganism and Judaism. He was the fulfillment of Judaism. He was the replacement of paganism. And so Jesus came into the world with this, this new message, this new covenant, no longer found in the sacrifice of animals, the obedience to the, the Mosaic law, this new covenant that came through the blood of Jesus Christ being shed once and for all that led to a new command 
that created this new movement. And this new covenant will fulfill it. It would fulfill and replace the, I call it the behavior-modifying religion that sometimes we're still caught up in. Do these 10 things and, and then you'll be okay. You know, we're like doctors handing out pills sometimes. You know, three steps to change your character. No, your character is changed by one step when your faith is put in Jesus Christ and Him alone. You see, this new covenant led to this new commandment to not only love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, let me sum it up for you. You don't need 400, 500 laws of Moses to tell you you need to love your neighbor. You need one. Love your neighbor as yourself because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So here we stand today in, in 2019. And can I tell you, I see the church of Jesus Christ in our culture, in our day, in our city, in our nation, slipping right back between the two powers once again of the empire and the temple. There are believers today that think everything rises and falls on government. And you're so much caught up in what the government is doing instead of what Jesus is doing that you have no impact on anyone around you other than having a good political argument. And I don't think that is what God called us to be. On the flip side, we've turned right back to the temple again. We've, we've merged the old with the new. And even though we say we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're still trying to live it out by our works. And we live by the motto, as long as I'm better than you, I'm okay. As long as I'm not the worst of the bunch, then God must love me. And we're right back where they were. You see, the Bible, Romans is a, a letter to the church, but it's a letter to us because it shows us once again that we've got to get back to where the power is to see life change. So here's the Apostle Paul, a man who was gripped by the understanding of grace and mercy more than anybody else. A man that knew he shouldn't be where he was. But by the grace and mercy of God, he was. In fact, in 1 Timothy, it'll be on the screen. He kind of gives just a little snippet. We'll talk more about this next week. But he just gives this point of praise. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he's considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. If you just want to put a parenthesis there, he is underselling his wickedness, all right? He was a bad dude, all right? He says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out to me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We all stand in that point. And we see God's love for us. So here's the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, and yet he was the example, he said, so that no one would ever think they're beyond the touch of God's grace and mercy. But yet, because we're caught between the empire and the temple again, for whatever reason, many in the church now believe there are people that are too far gone. There, there, are, there are groups, there are behaviors that somehow we think, well, there's just no way. But if we get back to the gospel, we recognize that he is the way maker, Amen. That Jesus Christ made a way for all to come and to receive his grace and his mercy. So let's begin with this overview. You thought we were already there. Let's begin with this overview of chapter 1 that gives us kind of this picture of why this is so critical both then and now. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to read most of the rest of the chapter. It'll be up on the screen, but hopefully you have it in front of you right there. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I've planned many times to come to you. But have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, 
just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Paul, again and again in his other letters, you, you hear this, I'm longing to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I, I need to be in Rome. Well, he got there, but he didn't get there as a preacher. He got there as a prisoner, but he sent this letter ahead to them. He said, listen, I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, as we study Romans, there's two words we need to understand right up front. And, and, and how I'm going to lead this study is each, each time we come to a new chapter, I'm going to give you an overview, then we're going to come back in and dig into some of the detail of it, Okay. But two words we've got to get straight from the very beginning. The one, one is the word gospel. How many use the word gospel in your conversations this week with others? Hey, we've got a few. All right. It's just not a common word, right? And in fact, many don't understand that word. They think it's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels. Well, they, they can contain the gospel. But the gospel, as I've already explained, is the good news. It's the good news of the mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father that He sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to die for us. And by the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, we now are made right. We are now justified. We now stand before God and not separated by sin, but be made right by the blood of Jesus. That's good news. It's the only thing that will save anybody. It's good news. It's not about being a little good little boy and girl for Jesus. It's about coming under the blood of Jesus and saying, yes, I believe and I have faith, which is the other word that we need to get right. Because faith is a word in our culture that is used all over the place, right? In fact, for most, faith is a little more than optimism. You know, you're out there watching your kids like a t-ball team and they're down by 30 runs and you're like, hey, just have faith. Come on, you can do it. It's like, it's not going to happen, but I'm trying to encourage you, you know. It's, we use it as kind of this optimism. Don't give up. Don't quit. A similar word like that is believe. But yet we believe many things that we never act on. Because you see, faith is believing enough about something that you're willing to act on it. Faith is willing to say, I believe enough or I trust enough in God that I'm willing to do what he says in spite of even how I feel. But yet we get hung up by, in our culture, and they wouldn't understand this, we say we believe in a lot of stuff, but we never act on it. How many believe that we should floss every day? <laughs> enough said. <laughs> just saying. We believe a lot of things we just don't do. And what Paul is laying out to the Romans, and they could not understand how we are, because they're like, if you believe in something, you're willing to die for it. If you believe in something, you're willing to change your life for it. So faith is trusting enough to do what God says in spite of our own feelings. So Paul opens this letter with this passage of Scripture that so many of y'all are like, oh, pastor, I'm glad you're teaching this. I'm glad I'm not you, because it's one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the Bible. For the next two and a half chapters, Paul paints a picture of what happens to humanity when we reject God. Paul paints a picture, not just of individuals, but of humanity, of culture, when we say, you know what, God, thank you, but no thank you. We are not interested. And he begins in chapter uh, 1, verse 18. He, he's saying, since the fall of man in the garden, here is where man has gone because they have rejected the creator, our God, who's worthy of all praise. So it picks up in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against what? Help me out. All. I want you to get that in your minds real quick. All, all 
the godlessness, which is the disregard for God, uh, so it destroys this vertical relationship we have. Basically, we're not going to worship you. And uh, so, again, revealed him against all ungodly, all the godlessness, and what else? Wickedness, which is the disregard of human rights. So, in other words, uh, we're, we're not going to love, we're, we're gonna, not going to fight for truth or justice of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, the wrath of God is not something that's going to come someday. You know, we, we can read Revelation, we can read the prophets of old, and we're like, okay, God is going to like blow this up. Well, there is going to be that. There's a new heavens and a new earth someday. But the wrath of God, Paul said, has been released. It, it's been released since the garden. It, it's something that is ongoing because man has turned away from God. And really what Paul's saying, if you don't understand that, if you don't grasp that, then the gospel is really meaningless to you. If you don't get a hold of the fact of our lostness without God, then we have no desire for the gospel it gives us to God. So here this wrath is seen as abandonment. We'll talk about that a little bit more. In fact, part of what makes hell hell is just the absence of God. I mean, if you think about that. So it's this abandonment to yourself. Pick it up, verse 19. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So what Paul is saying is, look, God imprinted himself on every one of us. We were made, mankind was made in the image of God. Shake your head if you believe that. I know you may know some people you don't think that's true about, but it's true. We were made in the image of God. And because of that, all of everything, all of creation speaks about God. So even if we say we reject him, we're lying to ourselves because we know inside we were created with this not only a need to worship, but also this moral code that somehow wants justice in our lives. I, I, I grew up in a much different age, obviously, but I, I grew up with a show that I, I, I look forward to on Saturdays. It was amazing. It was called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Can I get a witness? Oh, man, just could not wait. We didn't have the internet. I mean, we had like Encyclopedia Britannica. If you want to see something, that was it, right? And I couldn't wait because they would always have these coolest animals. But to be honest, there's only one animal I wanted to see every time it came on. It was this rascal right here. I want to see that guy. Because invariably in that day, and remember, those were kinder, gentler days. They would show the, the lion, and you knew what was fixing to happen, right? Some poor antelope is fixing to be snack, all right? And as a little guy, I know I'm not supposed to get excited. I'm like, come on, you know, here, here it comes. And, and sure enough, the lion will be all down in the bushes, all hunkered down, you know. And, and about that time, this little antelope will be looking around all innocent. Next thing you know, it's like, and they'd cut away. Now, today, we'd show all the gory bloods and guts, you know. But there, it was like, you just knew. And then they come back to the lion, he's like licking his lips. And you know, I never thought once that Blyam was having a crisis that we would as humans. I never thought for once he's sitting there going, thinking, wow, man, I don't know what came over me. All this violence? I mean, there's got to be a better way to meet my needs than that. I mean, I need some help. Someone give me therapy, please. No, he's just thinking, yum, bring on the next one. Because he's a lion. Because he wasn't made in the image of God. There's no conscience. There's no moral guide. It's only one thing. It's survival. It's, it's, it's inclinating out of our hormones, going after that which makes us who we are. It's the same difference than when you come home today. Your dog is not going to meet you at the door and start apologizing. Only for you to find out later he ate your favorite shoe and he tore up your pillow. No, why? Because he's a dog. Mankind was made in the image of God. 
We are not the brute beasts that are around us. It's why you can see a small child, even the smallest child, when you, when you come around, if they've done something wrong, they know already. And they go and they try to hide because there's something inside of them that says, oh, that's not good. God put in us this moral code, this image God, this imprint on us. And Paul says, because of that, we have no excuse from worshiping and honoring our God. So he said, God's wrath is then revealed. So how is it revealed? Well, later in Romans, there's a couple of things. One, it's revealed in just the fact, and God said in the garden, that death is part of the wrath of God. We, we will die. We live in mortal bodies and we will decay. There's, there's this, you get old, all right? It just happens. That's part of the wrath of God. In Romans 8, there's another part, which he says is the misery and the futility that we find here on this earth. In other words, if everything we live for is on this earth and everything we strive for on this earth, if you live long enough, you recognize the futility of that. I never will forget, I was taught this lesson very early when about 12 years old, no, excuse me, about 14 years old, my papa, who was my hero, was going to retire. Man, I never knew a more godly man. My dad and him were right there together, but Papa, I grew up going to his house and hearing him at nighttime crying out to God for me and for my siblings and for his family. He's the one you didn't want praying at thanksgiving you know what i'm talking about you know like you're waiting for the turkey and giblets he's like oh god bless cousin sally and lord helps cousin may and and he would go for like 30 minutes like papa cut it out we're hungry here okay but he was just godly man and i helped him i went up and helped him build his retirement house couldn't wait for them to get there and the day after he retired fell over and died most godly man his wife a year later with a broken heart fell over and died If our hope is on this earth, it's futile. Because of the fall of man, there's no guarantee. The godly or the ungodly, Jesus made it clear. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So part of this, part of this wrath of God is just the human experience of death and futility. But here, Paul says specifically, the, the, the wrath of God was revealed. He starts out by put, putting this picture together of what, is he, what I would call the degradation of humanity, the, the falling apart of humanity, man being left to its own vices, leading to the culture now that we live. And Paul said, even to the point that when it comes to a place where culture will even celebrate what ought to be shameful. Hello, New York City abortion law last week. Light it up pink, brothers. We're killing babies now. Woohoo! God bless America. You see, guys, what Paul wants us to see is that when culture moves apart from God, we see the expression, and this is not a message to the U.S., it's a message to us. We see the outflow of that because God says, go ahead on. See, that's the wrath of God. In our lives now, we say, God, we don't need you. He says, okay. Live it out. God, I don't want you. Have it your way. God, leave me alone. Go ahead on. So his Holy Spirit continues to poke. So here it is. I'm going to just lay it out this way today, the rest of this chapter. Just a real quick picture of where we go when we put God in the side and say, God, we don't want you. Where does it lead? How does a culture, how does a culture be shaped when we can move apart from God? Paul wanted them to know this out of his love for grace and mercy because he wanted them to see that the gospel was good news and we need it. So the first thing that happens when a culture moves away from God is this, it starts to ignore God. It starts to ignore God. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, if we want nothing to do with God, he'll grant our wish. 
But when you read this, it sounds as if God is ticked off because we were just not gracious. We didn't say thank you, God. But it's much more than that. It's not just saying thank you, God. What Paul is saying here is basically man becomes plagiarist. We take what God has created, we take what God has given us, and we say, oh no, we did that. We did that. I have this great career because I'm exceptionally knowledgeable. Well, who gave you the ability to gain that knowledge? Who gave you the ability to even maintain that capacity? So what we're saying is, is that man becomes plagiarist. We ignore God and we take what God has made and we try to pass it off as our own. So we're not grateful. Neither do we accept what he's done for us or even acknowledge it. Oh, we still worship because we were created to worship. We just don't worship God. When man ignores God, we find something else to worship. We create something else that, that we can give our allegiance to, and we give it to things that are not God, where he deserves the ultimate affection we have, and we act like little spoiled kids. It's like the kid that one day doesn't understand at all what he says. It looks at a mom and dad and says, I just wish you'd die. It's interesting, they never say that on the way to Disney World. You ever notice that? <laughs> I just wish you weren't here. Well, they have no concept of what it means what mom and dad have put around them and this, this security and all the things that give them a chance in life. But everything inside says, I don't want anyone to restrain me. I don't want anyone to get in the way of what my nature says should happen right now. So we rebel. We rebel against man. We rebel against God. And that's what they were talking about. So when the first step of culture apart from God is we, we ignore God, then we start to do the second thing, and that is we start to redefine God. We start to redefine God. We begin to shape him in our own image. Verse 22 says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, we may say that we don't want God, but again, because of the imprint of the creator on us, we have this capacity that needs to worship. We need to worship. There's something inside of us that says we've got to have someone to worship. So we create our own version of God and generally make him a God that we can control. And it's truly amazing with this God. We, define, we, we redefine God, and he's always so amazingly approving of who I am and what I do. He just likes everything about me. He, he's my buddy God. I love him. We see it. Not, we don't only see it just in the world. We see it in church. We see it among Christians. We're doing things that are absolutely opposite of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors, ourselves. And yet, when challenged by that, our, our trump card answer these days are, but I have a peace about it. I have a peace about a lot of things. Criminals have a peace about a lot of things. But yet we create this God that somehow we can control because, again, humans can make the conscious do what they want it to do. Listen, if I followed every inclination in my heart, if I followed every thought in my head, I would have a ministry. You could visit me there. I'd have a prison ministry because I would be in it. We all battle this. We all battle the inclinations of our humanity, but yet God's impression upon us sets us up to even to worship him or redefine him. And a culture apart from God ignores God, redefines God. And then the third step is they, they set aside all physical restraints. There's a big change in this section in verse 24 where, God's, where the word starts out, therefore, therefore. I call it the dimmer switch theology. The Word of God teaches us, Jesus taught this, when we receive truth, the more we receive truth, it's like God's turning the light up. We can, we can see truth more clearly. But the more we reject truth, it's like God just turns the light down and says, okay, then you're in darkness. He says, therefore, 
God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Now let's just stop there for a moment. What does that mean? You may see in some version the word lust there. It's basically, in the original language, an over-desire. So even for good things, you can have an over-desire for good things, and it becomes your God. You can have an over-desire for things that God said are good, and it can become your God. But yet, because you've you're been given over to your sinful desires of the heart, you're caught up in these over-desires, then now you chase after things you think will bring freedom that actually lead to bondage. It's like the business person. The Bible says you need to provide. Man doesn't take care of his family's worse than an infidel, okay? You know, we, we get that, right? You don't, work, you don't work, you shouldn't eat. So a person who begins to worship their career, they're good at it. Next thing you know, they start seeking their identity out of that career, and they begin to serve it as what will make them a somebody. And the drive kicks in, and the drive begins to dominate their life, and everything else has to be fit around the career because the career becomes the most important thing. Because again, they find their identity in it. And the worst thing that can happen in that situation is they just get a promotion. They do well. Because when we get the promotion the world may give, what it does is we start to think that we can find blessing in this over-desire. And it convinces us that this is real life. And it enables them to forget the wreckage they're making out of their friendships, their marriage, their family, anyone else around them. Because selfishness has taken over. Greed has taken over. And now it's become their God. He's given us over to our sinful desires, our, our lust being taken out to the fullest extent now become our God. Instead of freedom, they bring bondage. Then he says, also then he gives them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. Because of this, dimmer switch just goes a little dimmer. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, all, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The dimmer switch just keeps getting down. God's wrath was revealed against what? Help me out here. All. All godlessness and wickedness. You see, anything at this point that feels like restraint gets abandoned. We ignore God. We're redefining God. We're back to our human nature. We're the line hanging out in the bush waiting to chomp. And everything that is driven is now driven by the naturalness of our, of our humanity. See, pagan religions actually promoted this. It's the natural result of self-worship. That ultimately, you would see in all the pagan religions, uh, what we would call sexual impurity being celebrated wherever you went. I had a ministry uh, one time in, in, uh, in uh, not Bangalore, in B Balari, India, where we went, where, where I, we were feeding clothing and helping the children, which are the offspring of the temple prostitutes. Think about that. When we get into the paganism, we get into the things that are apart from God, sexual impurity has always been a part of that worship. When most Christians read this passage, though, all they want to talk about is homosexual sex, as if that's all that's here. And yet Paul is giving an example of, again, here's what happens with humanity, and I'm going to explain a little deeper in a moment, that when we push God away, that we all, that we all get caught up in. And these are just two illustrations of what's called sexual impurity. Let's just define sexual impurity real quick, church. Again, I think we've forgotten it. Sexual impurity, according to God's word, is any sexual activity outside of God's ordained boundaries between a man and a woman in a lifetime commitment of marriage. Everything else 
Everything else is sinful and separates us from God. But almost every current sermon, I googled this message, I was like, I wonder what people are saying about this, because I, I know what it is to teach this passage and go, God, can I just skip over this? But I can't. But almost every message I went to made this whole section about homosexuality, ignoring the majority of sexual sin. Guys, listen, understand this, God does not hate anybody. Whatever you want to identify as, God does not hate anybody. He is for us, he's not against us, but he leads us to the gospel, which then can change our lives. God does not hate anyone, but he calls all sexual activity outside of that, between a man and a woman in marriage, relationship, sin. Why? Well, in the beginning, God created us male and female. He recorded this amazing covenant where he says, together with God, we form this creative reproduction of God's heart that says, go and be prosperous, be fruitful, multiply. And he covenanted those things together in marriage and said, this is holy. It's a covenant that should be honored by all. We see it again and again in the New Testament. And what we do is we minimize the covenant of marriage. We minimize the covenant of God. And what we do is we take God out of the center and we wonder why it brings hurt. You see, we've got to understand that God calls a lot of what good church-going Christians do in this life sin. We just don't talk about it. We don't get excited about it because, again, we love each other. Look, most of Christianity, or much of it, wants to rail against homosexuality, but they wink at their own sins. We just call them weaknesses. We're trapped in pornography, or we're trapped in adultery, or trapped in fantasy, whatever you might have in that area, whatever's apart from, again, man-woman marriage. So the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. If you haven't figured it out, we live in a fallen world. Shake your head if you agree with that. Yeah, we, this is not a perfect utopia, guys. I, I really worry about the ones like, this is heaven. Wow, you really have a low, low picture of heaven. We live in a fallen world where things are not like they were meant to be when Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. Neither are they what they will be when Jesus returns again and we walk in the new heavens and the new earth. In this fallen world, there are a lot of things that just aren't right and are not fair. Can we, we like fairness, don't we? We like justness. You see, in this fallen world, newsflash, we're all going to die. In this fallen world, some are hit with disease and complications that were not part of God's original creation that are a result of man's sin in the garden. Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we won't go there, I'll just read a portion of it. It says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. The frustration, the, the, the pain, the, 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 the light switch dimmer thing happening in humanity, God says, I'm, I'm doing that by hope that you will see the need of what only God can provide, and that is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He said so much so that the creation is crying out. The whole creation is in brains of childbirth right up to now, longing for the day when it'll be made right. You see, the creation, us, this world, is subject to futility according to God's word. Things don't work the way they were originally designed to work. Winds, rain, climate, storms, volcanoes, bacteria, viruses, drunk drivers that cross the line and kill the most godly person you ever knew in your life. Things aren't working the way they should in God's original creation. We have things like wild white blood cells going nuts, mutations of notch three genes, 10,000 other heartaches from a fallen world. Why? Because the creation is subjected to futility because it is... He said, God, I don't want you. 
I'm going to redefine you. I'm going to cast off all restraints. In this fallen world, some of us are born with physical inclinations and drives that just can't be met. It's not fair. Think about it. Physically based aggressive tendencies may lead to violent behavior, but we don't condone it, do we? No, we work with it. Physically based lethargic tendencies may lead to laziness and neglect, but we don't condone it. Frenetic tendencies may lead to disruption and workaholism. Gloomy, bent, may lead to suicidal thoughts. And anxious, bent, may lead to paranoia. Wake up some people. Addictive tendencies may lead to alcoholism, bondage, and gambling, and deadly smoking. A low frustration threshold may lead to outbursts of rage. And strong sexual desires may lead to lust, pornography, fornication, adultery, or even polygamy. But we don't condone it. Because again, God said... Man, woman, marriage, God in the center. You see, it's a fallen world. And many of life's outcomes are not simple and they're not fair. And so when we cast off restraint, what this world has told us then is then go back to our animal human nature and just fulfill every inclination of man, every, every drive you have, just, just it's your right, it's your privilege, and it's not just about sexuality, it's just sin. Paul said the light switch is getting dimmer. Because the very next thing that happens is this. Not only do we cast off physical restraints, we cast off relational ones. If God is not God, then we become the center of the universe, and everyone else is for us to use, to get what we want to make this life work. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind. So that they would do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That's a party you want to go to right there, isn't it? But yet in another letter, Paul said, that's who you used to be to the church. That's who you used to be. But he says, this is where man goes. And that tendency is in each of us. That, that tension is in each of us. Follow my human desires or follow God. You see, when we take God out of the picture, it's not long till we become our own God to get what we want, however we can get it, and you're there to serve my pleasure, so I've diminished even your value on this earth. And then finally, the last piece of this, and we're going to wrap it up. I know this is a lot. We're just doing an overview. The last step of culture apart from God is we not only do we say, God, we don't want you, we redefine you. Now we cast off physical strength, we cast off relational restraints. And at the end of it is, he says, we start to promote and celebrate sin. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So the formerly shameful becomes our source of pride. Some will say, oh, that's right, Pastor. They have pride. No, that's not, where, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking to us. That which used to be shameful becomes our pride. I mean, step back for a moment. Just examine ourselves in the light of God's word and, 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 and see the beauty of God's gospel because the only thing that can save us and change us, we get caught right up in this. I mean, think about the idols that we chase. I mean, when's the last time you convinced your kid that their identity is found in their SAT score? It's an idol. Your value and worth is only what you can accomplish. How, how many is sport? I mean, we can go all down that line. I mean, think about it. It's in all these aspects. How, how many times we sympathetically nod at someone else's envy because we're in a world that's always envious? 
That's why, we, that's why we like to read about people who have more than we have. We're like, oh, yeah, well, if I cheated like they did, I'd be there too. We get all caught up in this envy. Have I allowed gossip to go on around me unchallenged? You say, oh, I don't do that. I don't whisper in other people's ears. No, but in your news feed every week, you can't, read, can't wait to read about that celebrity couple that broke up because you just need to know. we get caught up in gossip am i excusing sin and my pride because i'm an adult i mean the last thing we want to be in our culture is prudish come on that's the last thing we need to be in the know but yet now things that were shameful are just mainstream porn soft porn extreme violence we just call it artistic expression some of our favorite entertainment is just that, and we excuse it as, it's just really good acting, Pastor. And the thing that we would never, ever show in our church, it, we would excuse because, after all, we are adults. We can handle it. Now we're being entertained by the very thing that God said is part of the degradation. Oh, it, it finds itself. It's in the news cycle. Social media feeds. We are people of intolerance, arrogance, name-calling, and shaming. We want everyone else to forgive us of our past. We will not forgive anyone else of their past. That's who we are. And Paul said, here it is. There's no mercy. We're, we, we caught up in this age of trolling. We're now we're name-calling people instead of just loving people toward Jesus Christ. So here's the take-home. Here's the lessons, because i got to stop, and you want me to stop. So I, we're going to wrap it up. I'm like wanting Paul to stop too, but he goes on for two more chapters, so it's really just getting good. And oh, by the way, the next chapter says, oh, to you religious people to think, yeah, I talked to them. He's like, yeah, you're just as bad. You need Jesus too. So don't get too far ahead of me, okay? So here's the take home, two lessons, and we're going to close it. This list, which again, is not all exhaustive, but man, it's pretty full, right? This list, it isn't a list to show us why everyone else needs Jesus, it's meant to show us why we need Jesus. Because every one of those battles is in us. Every one of those tensions is in us. We are human. <laughs> we are a hormonal mess sometimes. But the spirit of the living God lives in those who receive the gospel. And guess what? Greater is he that is in us than what? He that's in the world. And that's where transformation comes. Look, Paul's not writing about Rome and how bad it's getting. I hear this all the time. Oh, it's getting so bad, Pastor. It's been bad since the fall of the garden. We are just more knowledgeable now. We have more access, and we think it's worse. It's just because our culture now talks about it everywhere, and we know about it. You see, our culture's not starting to get bad. It's been going downhill since Adam and Eve. But here's the thing. This sermon, this teaching through the book of Romans, remember the Word of God is a mirror for us to see ourselves in. There's hope in there because the righteous live by faith. But it's a mirror for us to see ourselves in. It's not ammunition, ammunition for you to use to judge other people. Pastor, give it to them. Come on, that's awesome. I love that sermon today, man. You just stepped on everybody's toes. If I didn't step on my own toes, I didn't preach today. Because we're all right there. Here's the second thing. Well, <laughs> before I get to the second thing, I, I thought this so critical. One of the authors I was reading, and I, I struggle with this. But it makes sense. He said, if you're not the worst sinner you know, then the gospel means nothing to you. If you're not the worst sinner you know, then the gospel means nothing to you. If they is in your vocabulary, well, they are doing this, and they need that, and this should happen to them, 
then your self-righteousness leads you to the same wrath of God. Look, I need Jesus. We need Jesus. It's good news. He's made a way for me, and he asked me to have faith and believe. Paul was gripped by grace and mercy. Remember, he said, I'm the worst sinner. I want you to know God's got a better path. It's found through Jesus Christ by faith. Here's the second take home, and then we're going to pray. The solution to a messed up culture isn't to make non-Christians act like Christians. It's to introduce everyone to Jesus. Legislated morality just sends nicer people to hell. It's not what Jesus died for. He's not in behavior modification. He's into life transformation. And the gospel changes us from the inside out. Why? Because we begin to worship God. In fact, this phrase in Romans says we begin to worship the creator who's forever praised. Amen. You want the solution to all this? We're going we're gonna to bring it right down to the solution to all that. When we battle these inclinations, we battle these tendencies, we battle these things that war against what we know is the knowledge of God. The answer is we praise the creator who is blessed and worthy forever. Amen. So be it. And that's our battle. Who do I worship? That's my battle. Who do I worship? Moment by moment, day by day, second by second. Amen.